Acts chapter 2, we're going to be picking up in verse 37, and we'll read through verse 41 this morning as we continue on in our series in the book of Acts. As we have completed of sorts Peter's sermon, and now we come to hear the response of the crowd to what Peter said as he's proclaimed the gospel to them. Acts 2, verse 37 through 41. I hope you brought your Bible and can follow along there. If not, there's also the words on the screen. Follow along as I read out loud. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And since the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, the sermon which we have taken two weeks to work through and dissect leads to something wondrous and extraordinary. The first revival of the New Testament church. 3,000 people are baptized. 3,000 people That's a good day at church. Good day at church. Now, what's nice about it is we also know we don't have maybe the skepticism and cynicism we have when we hear numbers like that today, right? Actually, we're so used to hearing that. Every revivalistic service, 10,000 people were baptized. 98% of them had already been baptized. Yeah, you got the people who are getting saved for the 10th time that year, walking the aisle. No, that's not the case here. This is a first-time occurrence, people walking the aisle, repenting and believing and being baptized. But since we've um, been, uh, we've had a couple weeks in between various times which we looked at Peter's sermon, let's do some review, because it begins this way, verse 37, when they heard this. So let's review what, is, what it is that they heard that brought them to this place of salvation. Um, if you recall, at the beginning of chapter 2, the apostles are in the upper room. They're praying. They're studying God's word. They're waiting for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has said would be poured out upon them. And then the Holy Spirit indeed comes. He, comes. he comes in power with wind and sound and tongues of fire upon them. And then what happens? They explode out of the upper room. They go out into Jerusalem. And those, the disciples of Jesus, begin to proclaim the gospel so that those around could hear it. And then this miracle happens. Where the people in Jerusalem, there's people from all over the various parts of the known world at that time. At least 14 nations, different nations are represented in Jerusalem that simply that are mentioned in Acts that are there to celebrate the various Jewish holidays. And they hear the gospel proclaimed in their own tongue as various disciples were given the ability, the gift to speak in tongues in foreign languages. So if you can imagine, it'd be like rednecks speaking in French all of a sudden. Have a bunch of apostles talking with a slang, suddenly speaking with a perfect French accent in such a way that people could understand them. 
or frankly, just being understood at all would be good for rednecks, wouldn't that? That would be, that would be nice. And so, what, so they were amazed at this, and they, they hear this, and the gospel proclaimed in their own language, and they asked the, this question that, of course, you and I would ask, and they go, what is this? This is a little bit odd. This is a little bit bizarre. And then Peter stands up, and he launches into the first sermon of the New Testament church, so to speak. It begins by answering their questions and saying that, listen, this is what you're seeing here is a sign of the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. That the pro- we, people are prophesying and proclaiming the gospel that was told that we were gonna, that was going to happen in Joel 2, and that is what is going on here. And then Peter launches into a proclamation and explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He points to the wonders and miracles of Jesus' life, the great things he did that points to his divinity. He points to the death of Jesus Christ, the atoning work of Christ, the resurrection he gives great focus on, saying, listen, he rose from the dead. That points to his, the fact that he's Messiah and that he's Lord. And then he says, he points to the fact that Jesus is now ascended and sits on a throne. And at the end, he makes this in verse 36, which is going to be the immediate context to which people are responding in verse 37. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The point of the message of the first sermon by Peter is this, is that this Jesus who you saw, this historical figure that you put to death, this Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. And not only that, he is the Lord, he is the Yahweh, the divine King to come. That is who Jesus is. And this brings us up to our passage of focus today. And we see the crowd asking another question. We see something has happened to their hearts. Verse 37 says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. This is an idiom, right? We use something similar to this, like having a broken heart, or you've cut me, man, you've cut me, you've cut me deep. I mean, it's a pierce. It's like having a knife jabbed into your chest is what they're experiencing here. Incredibly acute distress and regret is what they're experiencing. And this leads us to our first question. I'm going to have three questions for us to walk through to guide our time here this morning. And the first question is this, is what is it that cut them to the hearts? What is it? What, was, it how, was it Peter's great preaching? Probably not. Probably wasn't the skill with which he preached the gospel. But what is it? In John 16a, Jesus had said that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. The word convict is a, word, a Greek word, elegko, which means to cross-examine. It's like a loyalty word. To be pressed with evidence. To be confronted with something. And that is what Peter does. You see, these people's hearts are cut because they've been confronted with two things in particular. And the first is this. They have been confronted with the truth of who Jesus is. They have been confronted with the truth of Jesus. One of the most typical things that happens when people learn about Jesus and they hear about stories about Jesus is they quickly want to hijack who he is and why he came. They want him to be who they want him to be instead of who he actually claims to be. Some people back then and today wanted, they just thought Jesus was a really great teacher, a prophet. And that's how many people treat Jesus today. He had some really cool things to say, putting him in the, in the line with some of the great teachers of history. 
And that's who they want Jesus to be. Some people back then and today just see Jesus as a political Messiah, the one who's going up against the big guy. He's going to hold the banner for whatever political causes and social causes that we, that we have today. But some people also see back then and today as well that Jesus is maybe not even any of those things. He's simply just, you know, your run-of-the-mill cultic hack, the kind of persona that draws people to him and is a flash in the pan here one day, gone tomorrow. But as we saw last week at the end of Peter's sermon, the proposition from Peter is that, is that he's not any of those things. At least not, that's not who Peter and the apostles nor Jesus claim who Jesus is. He says there in verse 36 that Jesus is Lord and Christ. He is Messiah and Lord of the worlds. Is that who you understand him to be? People often want to drive away from this. There's a great interview by a guy named uh, Misha Asayas who writes for a French um, kind of rock journal in which he actually goes through an extremely long interview with Bono of YouTube fame. In fact, the, book, it, the interview is so long it was turned into a book, uh, a book-length um, discussion between them. And here's the, let me just read from you this, a, a bit of that discussion. It goes this way. Bono is sharing about how Jesus, being the Son of God, and who is the sacrificial lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. And this, this journalist, Mishka, says this. That's a great idea. No denying it. Such a great idea. Such great hope is a wonderful thing, even though it's close to lunacy, in my view. Christ has his rank amongst the world's great thinkers, but Son of God, isn't that far-fetched? And here is Bono's response. No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot of things to say along the lines of the great prophets like Elijah and Muhammad and Buddha or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you to do that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not just a teacher. Don't call me just a teacher. I'm not just a prophet. I am the Messiah. I am God incarnate. And people will say, no, 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 no. Jesus, please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. A prophet we can understand. But you're a bit eccentric. That's okay, Jesus, if you're just a prophet. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that, but don't mention the M word. Don't say you're the Messiah, because then we'll have to crucify you for that. And Bono goes on and says this, no, no, I... I I know you're expecting me to come back with an army, this is talking as of Jesus, and set you free from these creeps, but actually I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. At this point, every servant who hears Jesus, he says, would begin to start staring at their shoes, and they say, oh my goodness, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is this. Either Christ was who he said he was as the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. He's either who he said he was or he's a complete nutcase. You see, Peter confronts, not only confronts the crowd with the stark claims of who Jesus claims to be, but he also, it's, it's, it's important to see here, he confronts them with the historical evidence that at that point they cannot deny. Remember, Jesus is someone who lived amongst them, who did miracles in their midst. They were there when they said, crucify him, crucify him, and he was put to death. And they were there in which it was, it was known all through Jerusalem that he had been risen from the dead, and the people were claiming this. They could say, let's go to the grave. Let's prove you wrong. Peter doesn't say, well, you guys are just going to have to believe. If you're really going to you know, have to understand the resurrection, you're just going to have to 
make that wonderful leap. But that's not what Peter, that's not what Peter does. He said there's historical evidence. There's a witness to this. And this is actually the same thing that Paul does in Acts 26. Paul in Acts 26 is standing in, in, in on trial, oddly enough, or is waiting trial. And he's standing before uh, King Agrippa. King Agrippa is a puppet king of Israel under the Roman, under the Roman Empire. <laughs> And he's sharing the gospel to Agrippa. And Agrippa and his cohorts in his court are laughing. They're jesting with, oh, this gospel, resurrection from the dead. And Paul says, no, 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 you have to believe this. So this is a reasonable thing, he goes on to say. He says, King Agrippa, you know these things because they happened here in Jerusalem. And you can go talk to people. And what was Agrippa's response when faced with the historical evidence? Silence. Silence. The laughing stops because he is confronted with the truth. Peter could not say these things in verse 32 and have people cut to the heart unless there were scads of evidence that what he was saying was true. It was a matter of public record. They were cut to heart because they were confronted with the truth of who Jesus was. They were also confronted with the second thing, and that is they were confronted with the death of Jesus. Two times Peter says, you crucified him. Verse 23 says this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. The most insensitive seeker service and sermon ever, right? Hey, thanks for showing up. You killed him. Oh, Okay. And when Peter says, you killed him, you crucified him, understand this, Peter is not pointing to the Jewish people because this is a historical problem, right? People said, oh, the Jews, they killed Jesus. Now, what he's pointing to, he's pointing to two things. One, he's pointing to all the people there corporately. There are 14 nations at least represented in this crowd. And many of them are Jewish, but many of them may have been from other countries that were Jewish converts, and they were there celebrating the Jewish holidays. It was not simply to Jews that he was speaking to. He was speaking to globally, corporately, that we are corporately responsible for the death of Jesus. You see, humankind, as we look throughout history, we understand this. Humankind is corporately responsible for the travesty of the crucifixion of the Son of God. Think about this with me. There have been various travesties in earthly history in which you would go, this is a, this is a, a crime not only on all humanity, but essentially by humanity. That yes, not all humanity actually did the act of slaughtering Jews for years on end in places like Hungary and Poland and France. But good men sat idly by and let it happen. That there is a, there is a travesty to such a degree that he would say, this is a damnation and a condemnation on all of humankind that this could happen. And that is, if you think about it, if Jesus is who he said he is, if he is indeed Lord and Christ, if he is the Son of God from heaven, then it ranks right up there and, in fact, exceeds all of those travesties. That this is a, a, a travesty by all of humankind. is a corporate responsibility, but even more profoundly, it's personal. Peter's looking out to them, and it's, it's, it's not only is it corporate responsibility, it's a personal responsibility. And Peter, maybe more than anybody else, understands this, Right? Saw the cross, suddenly he sees the death of Jesus Christ not as something that's you know, separate from him or abstract, but it was actually a personal thing. Peter, Peter, if you remember right before it, while Jesus is on trial, he denies Christ three times. 
And the third time, at least in Luke's account, as, as Jesus is being moved through the courtyard where Peter is at, Peter is asked a third time, and he denies knowing anything about Jesus, of having any connection or relationship to Jesus. He essentially betrays knowing him. And it says there in Luke chapter 22, verse 62, that as Peter denied Jesus the third time, he looked up, and there Jesus met his eyes. And what was Peter's response? He wept, and he ran into the dark, a man cut by the death of Christ. He was cut to the heart. His sin, his denial was not abstract. He did not violate some faceless nameless law of some governments. He violated a person. And we have to, if we're going to be cut to the heart, if you're going to come to a place, and what cuts these people to the heart is they began to see sin not simply as something abstract and something, you know, it's just a law I violated. No, it was something personal and that it was my sin that put him on the cross. It was my sin that drove him there. You get to see that you're, it's your sin. You're confronted by that sin. That's your selfishness, your pride, your cowardice, your adultery, your lust, your gossip, your bigotry, and your hate. It makes it necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. Your sin cuts you to the heart when you realize that when you, that you're not simply breaking God's law, you're breaking God's heart. You're not simply breaking God's laws, you're breaking God's hearts. It's a personal affront and a personal offense. And this has been the case whenever there is revival, whenever there's conviction, it starts here that the Holy Spirit cuts you and his power is released into your life. It comes from this place that knowing that I am a sinner and it is because of my sin that God felt it necessary to send his son to die on a cross. John Newton understands this. The writer of Amazing Grace says this, and another one of his hymns, it goes like this. He said, My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me deep in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be, head, be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. Why were they cut to the hearts? Because Peter goes, he was the Lord, and he was the Christ, and he was the Savior, and how does he end? And you crucified him. You cut me deep, Peter. You cut me deep. A Christian is one who sees what they have done to the face of Christ. And it's personal. It's personal. Critical question. Do you know what you have done? It's interesting. On the cross, what does Jesus say? Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. But the forgiveness begins to be manifest in your life when you start to know what you've done. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says this, And they will look upon the one they have pierced, and they will mourn as for an only son. Think about that kind of weeping and that kind of mourning. Have you come to that place of conviction of sin in your life? That the pain of losing an only son, that's the description it brings out in Zechariah. Have you been cut to the heart? Do you see your sin? Do you weep and mourn? Well, like Newton, how does Newton say? He says, I'm despairing. I'm despairing. If you can think about this in regards to the people in that moment, in that crowd, you crucified him. Oh, no. Oh, no. 
And you can hear it in the next question, right? What's the next question? What do we do now? What are they to do? Peter gives us the answer, right? What are we to do? Repent and be baptized. I'm going to dive into this a little bit. I'm going to illustrate it first, though, real quick. But essentially, the point is this. We're going to follow through with a number of things here. But essentially what Peter says is, you need an entirely new relationship with Jesus. You've gone and done it. You've messed it up the first time, haven't you? You put him to death. So you need a new relationship. You need a new way of relating to him. Let me see if I can illustrate the need that we, we have of this. There was a girl in England, and she had a terrible, terrible time in middle school, which is, right, I mean, you're like, yeah, it's middle school. It's redundant, right? But she was called all sorts of horrible names, but the, the nickname that she had most often was the name Flaky Pimpleton. It's creative, right? Flaky Pimpleton. That's what the girls in her school called her. That wasn't the only thing they called her. They called her many other worse names, but they, they knew she was too skinny, too mild, too meek. She wasn't good enough to be around them. And they made her life a living hell day in and day out in middle school. And day after day, this little girl, her name was Katie, would go home in tears, weeping. Her parents thought, eventually, eventually this will stop. Eventually, you know, she'll get over it. Eventually, she'll toughen up. Eventually, she'll befriend these girls. It's okay. But after two semesters of this, they decide that that's it. We're going to pull her out of school. Even though they had paid $60,000 a year for this school, they were going to pull her out. One of the best schools in the country. She had been forced out of her school. She was beaten, essentially beaten down by their words, mocked, scandalized, forced out of school. But I wonder how those same girls who did that to little flaky Pimpleton might react one day when they find out who she became. You see, that little Katie, that flaky Pimpleton, was actually a girl named Kate Middleton, who's now the Duchess of Cambridge, Prince William's new wife, and the future Queen of England. What would it be like if, I don't know, they're at Piccadilly Square, come around the corner, and, oh, there's flaky Pimpleton. I mean, oh my goodness, the Queen of England. We once mocked and bullied. What, what needs to happen there? There needs to be a new relationship built. It needs to be built on something else and something new. You see, when we've been confronted with who Jesus is and what we have done and how you've personally responded to him, there you realize there is an utter need for a complete change of mindset in relating to this Jesus. And that's what Peter gives us. Three things that we are to do. Change how you think of Jesus. Peter starts this way. What are we to do? What does he say? Repent. The word repent is the Greek word metanoia, which literally means a change of mind. In other words, they're probably kind of already there with repentance. They need to have a new way of thinking of Jesus entirely. Not, not just a new, new way of thinking, but a whole new attitude in the way they relate to Jesus. The whole new attitude in how they approach him and how they to relate to God. When you have a changed mind and a changed attitude, what then follows is a changed life. This is what repentance is. A turning away from the old way of relating and turning to a new way of relating. Instead of mocking, it's running towards Jesus. When you know someone, you start to begin acting out of a sense of their love for you instead of perhaps the distance between you. You see, so many of you, you may not have been the person who you think has mocked Jesus and scorned Jesus. 
But your way of relating to Jesus has been through, you know what, I'm just going to do some good things and we're going to be cool, right? We're going to be good. Right? Can you imagine if those, you know, those girls show up and hang out with Kate Middleton? Hey, can we do anything for you? Make things right? Yeah, way back then. You were totally scarred by that. It's all right. Oh, you don't need anything from us. Right? We can, but the, the problem is those things aren't good enough, are they? Those things aren't good enough. You need a whole new way of relating. See, how, do, how does somebody who relate to Jesus based on the gospel Repentance this is this, is I'm no longer going to think I can make up for my mocking and my scandalizing of him on my own abilities. It's got to be by grace. I've got to function out of his love for me now. You see, what, what will motivate you more to obey Jesus, to obey God, or to love someone? If you're just trying to earn their love or their pleasure, their, their faithfulness, or living out of, out of their faithfulness to you. You see, I, I'm not faithful to my wife. Someone could say, oh, my goodness, your, your wife loves you so much and she's so faithful to you. That means you can do whatever you want and she'll forgive you. That's how, look how, that's how great she is. No, in repentance, the new way of relating is this, is this person has loved me so much. This person has gone to the cross to make me his so much. How can I not serve them? How can I not live for them? How can I not change my life and my behavior and my attitudes towards them? Romans 2 verse 4 says this, it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. The goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Repentance, repentance. Would you be willing to repent of your sins, to have a whole new way of thinking, and frankly be willing to live a whole new way of, of living in light of Jesus? The second thing you've got to do is you've got to change how you identify with Jesus. And this is the word baptism. Peter says you've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Man, baptism's confusing, frankly, isn't it? Partly because you're in a Presbyterian church, and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, the baptism thing. I mean, let's just, can we just avoid this? No, ba- baptism's, baptism's confusing because, frankly, it's power and all that it signifies. You hear people, they're like, hey, what does baptism mean? Well, they're like, it's about going under, like going, it's like Noah, you're going into the water and coming out, death and life, and you go, yes, that's there. I have biblical evidence. But it also, you know, it also means cleansing, and being washed. And it also means, like, I'm actually, the internal experience is being baptized by the Holy Spirit, so it represents that as well. So what is it? Well, here's the, here's the thing. Baptism represents all those things. It's, it's enormous. It, here's what I, I want to say. It's, it's representing an entirely new way of identifying with Jesus. You see, we have this language and this word. It's an Old Testament word. We bring it into the New Testament. It's called a covenant. A covenant is the, the way in which you relate to someone. And that's what baptism is. It is a sign of the covenants. That you are now, you're now not dirty, you're clean. You're not, you're not your old man, you're a new man. You're not running around on your own, but now you have a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a whole new relationship. And what you're doing in baptism is you're coming in baptism and you're saying, I now identify with Jesus. I am his and he is mine. It is a sign of a covenant of a new relationship and you're making that known to everyone around you. This verse is, by the way, this verse, well, just really an aside, because I don't want to spend hardly any time on this. Some people look at this verse and the wording of it, and they use it as one of the, the primary verses to say that you actually are saved by being baptized. It's called baptismal regeneration or salvation by baptism. And I, it's, it, it actually kind of does look like that, but the problem is there's so many other verses that speak against that in the New Testament. That's not necessarily what it's talking about here. 
Baptism is actually signifying the thing that's going on internally. It's not actually the thing that saves you. Now, understand this. Baptism is required. It's required. It is not required to earn salvation or receive salvation, but it is one of those things should be a part of the conversion experience. That when you said, I trust in Jesus and he is mine, that you take on a public sign of that identification. Listen, if you're, man, how would you feel if, if you're getting married to somebody and you guys, I mean, you're like, man, you know, I'm, we're sick of the whole wedding thing and the wedding plan. So we're, we're going to go to the judge and we're going to get married and that's cool. We're married. That's awesome. And yet you don't, you don't want to wear the wedding ring and you don't want anybody to know. No one, no one knows. I don't want anybody to know that we're married. How would your spouse feel? I mean, they feel like they took a slap in the face. Listen, baptism, identifying with Christ is necessary. Not necessary for salvation, but it is a requirement. It is an essential for your Christian life. So we are identifying ourselves with Jesus. But understand this, you're identifying yourself. It is not primarily about what you do in baptism. Baptism is also, not only is it you identifying with Jesus, but primarily it's about Jesus identifying with you. You see, the verb there that says to be baptized is a passive verb. It means, essentially, it's more that you submit to baptism. I'm, a, it's, I'm allowing Jesus to put me under, to put his mark on me. I'm submitting to it, and that's what we're doing. And, and, and what are we being connected to in baptism? It says being baptized in the name of Christ Jesus. You're identified with him. So submit to baptism. It's an act of submission it's an act of saying, I am the Lord's. You see, it's, it's a complete contradiction from saying, no, you know, kill him, crucify him, crucify him. And now you're saying, I need him, I need him, I need him. I trust in him. So you need a new way of relating, a change of mind, a change of identity here with Jesus. And last, you need to change how you respond to Jesus. Change how you think about Jesus how you identify with Jesus, and finally change how you respond to Jesus. Let me just say this real quickly about baptism, because I forgot this. If, you're a, if you said, I, I love Jesus, and you've never been baptized, please come tell me, and we need to get you baptized. And we want you to make a public profession of faith. If you're a child, and you were baptized as an infant, you are in the covenant, and I don't have time to explain that right now. But it does require a time in which you stand up and say, that, is, that Jesus is mine, and I am his. And so in a Presbyterian church, I need to say this. If you kids, parents, if your kids love Jesus, have them baptized. And I also would say this. Uh, this is a problem. This is the Puritan mindset. God bless the Puritans. I mean, God love them. We, we love the Puritans here, and, and they, they give us a lot of good things. But there's, there's a, a strain from the Puritans that has kind of trickled down. It's this. It's like, they would, like people wouldn't be allowed to be baptized for years in Puritan churches because they wanted to make sure that they were saved. Is that what goes on in Acts 2? Now. Get baptized now. So parents, if your children are repenting and they're saying, I love Jesus, then bring them for baptism. It's, it's not, well, you know, they sin in this way. Yeah, so do you. Bring them for the identification of baptism. Make it a part of their life that they say publicly and profess, profess before all people, testify, I am Jesus's and he is mine. The third thing is this, change how you respond to Jesus. And that's simply this, I want to say, you surrender your will to him. What's the response they have right out of the gates? You crucified him, what shall we do? 
Understand the tone of this. If it, in terms of what I was putting it at earlier, I crucified him. Oh my, it was my sin. What do I do? The tone of this question is not, you know what, Peter, would you give us three things that would make up for this? Because that would be all good. That would be nice. No, what this is, is I will do anything. I will do anything. I will, do, I will give up anything to make this right. In other words, you go to Jesus and you say, I'm no longer the Lord and master of my life. You're the Lord and master of my life. Where you lead me, I will go. They're saying, what shall we do? We'll do anything. This is a blank check to Jesus. My life is now yours. This is what it means to make Jesus your Lord. To say, man, I, I want your forgiveness, but I, I will surrender to whatever you have for me, God. There's a great illustration of this. When the Japanese were surrendering to General Douglas MacArthur on the USS Missouri, and the, the Japanese um, general who was there, he was in all his official garb, the pomp and circumstance of this kind of official gathering. He's got his, his, you know, his uniform. He's got his sword on his side. And he goes up and he signs the, the document of unconditional surrender. And then after he signs the document, he goes to General MacArthur and he's gonna, he sticks out his hand to shake it. And MacArthur's standing there like this. And he says, no. You give up your sword first. And then we'll shake hands. What's the sword for you? See, some of you are saying, man, I like this Jesus guy. What do I do? You can have this, this, and this Jesus, but not that, dadgummit. You can't have my kids, and you can't have my sexuality, and you can't have my money, and you can't have my work. You can't touch those things. What is it that you're not surrendering? We got a kind, it's unconditional surrender. C.S. Lewis said this, we don't come to God as bad people trying to become good people. We come as rebels laying down our arms. Unconditional surrender. Utter and complete. There is no in-between. He's either your master and you're his servant, or you're the master of your life. And he's the servant in that case. That's what religion is. You know that? That's what religion is? And between the gospel and religion, the gospel says Jesus is your complete and absolute Savior and he's your Lord. But religion is this, is... I, I want some good things for my life, and if I do this, this, and this, Jesus gives it to me. Jesus is working for you then. He's your servants. That's not how it goes here. Coming to Jesus means you have been in rebellion completely to him, and now you must come and submit completely to him. So here's the question. Would you surrender this morning? Would you repent? Would you, have you, has your mind been changed? Not only about who Jesus is, but about, oh my goodness, it was my sin. It was my sin. Would you identify yourself with Jesus in baptism? Would you come up and pub pub publicly profess faith and say, I am the Lord's. He is mine. Last question. What do you experience when you do that? I'm going to say it this way. You get, you get complete freedom. You get the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it says you also get forgiveness. You get the indwelling, permanent gift of the power of the Holy Spirit who now empowers you to defeat sin. And you get forgiveness of sin. You know why you have freedom? You get freedom in your conscience because the very thing that convicts us, the cross of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, is actually the very thing that comforts us and it sets us free. This is the good news Here's how it works. Jesus, you look at Jesus dying on the cross. 
It tells you what? It tells you that this is what, how awful your sin is. The cross says you have sinned this big that it took the Son of God to die to pay for your sins. It says that you're that depraved and that messed up and I'm that terribly sinful. It tells you that. But it doesn't just tell you that. It also tells you this. That this is the links that Jesus would go, that God the Father would go to make you his. That the links that he would go to forgive you and to set you free from that sin. To usher you into a whole new of relating with him. It's the very same sight, the same thing that crushes you. That makes you see your, your, how sinful you are is the very thing that also extends to you grace and mercy. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that convicts you that also leads you to comfort. What made the cross an absolute must, understand this. People said this, we sang this in a hymn. I've tried not to say it this, this morning in the sermon. The, your sin did not make the cross necessary. What made the cross? Because, right, your sin made it, if you were going to be forgiven and be in a relationship with God, it made it necessary. But what made the cross necessary was the love of God for you. Because he didn't have to go to the cross. He could have said, forget you. But he doesn't. What makes the cross necessary, and we sing it in How Deep the Father's Love, what what holds him there is not your sin. What holds him there is the love of the Father and his love for you. That's what holds him there. But that's a power. That's a power that will change your life, that one would lay down his life to make you his. Why is Jesus on the cross? Because you mean the world to him. So here's what you get. If you, if you are convicted, you see the truth of Jesus and the truth of his death, you say, I want a new relationship with him, you get forgiveness. You get freedom. So here's the thing. You can be a Christian today. And you can be forgiven today. It's offered to you freely and fully. Simply say, I want it. I need it. I'm desperate for it. Father, would you give it to me through your son? So that's the place some of you are at. So maybe you need to do that right now. Listen, I'm not going to have you hold your hand up or anything like that. And we're not going to say, you know, sing, come as I am, or whatever it is, a thousand times. But we are going to go into prayer. I'm going to pray an old hymn. And the hymn title is this, This Breaks My Heart of Stone. I'm going to pray through it. And would you submit? Would you say, Jesus, it was my sin. It was my sin. That put you there. It was your love that guaranteed that you'd go there. I submit my life to you and I am yours. Would you say that this morning? And listen, by the way, that's not just for someone who's never said that. There's actually a lot of truth about being walking an aisle 10 times, 20 times. You know what it should be? We should walk an aisle every single day. Because every day you repent and you trust in Jesus. That's what the Christian life is. So would you pray with me? And then we'll close in worship. Oh, gracious Jesus, I pray that you, your pitying eye would come back, call us back, us wandering sheep. Lord, we have been false to you like Peter. Oh, Lord, would like Peter we weep over our sin. 
Let by your grace, may we be stored. May you set us free. Turn and look upon us now, Lord. And would you break our hearts of stone. Jesus, you are our Savior, you are our Prince, you are enthroned above. Would you give us repentance now? Would you change our hearts through your dying love? Give us what we so desperately long for, which is love unending and love unknown. Turn and look upon us now, Lord, and break and break our heart of stone. God, I've said it a thousand times. And isn't it such a good thing where we started this morning that you're a good father? Because I come before you this morning and I understand that my sin is egregious and my sin is weighty. And my sin made it need, it was why you needed to go to the cross. So gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive me. Lord, that you would make me your own. That you would restore me to a right relationship with you, to where I serve you as my Lord. And Lord, may I live out of your love for me as my Savior. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.